A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Friday Five. I hope that everybody is happy and well as we get back to a bit more normal here in the UK. And it's been lovely to be out and about meeting up with family and friends who haven't been seen in real life for what seems like the longest time. So to anyone new to my podcast series, welcome. This is my Friday Five, a topical and personal look at some of the things that have caught my eye in the world of well-being over the last week, as well as a bit of an update from my team of wellness warriors working on the Elizabeth Wellbeing magazine and website. So this is a shorter and sometimes slightly snappier broadcast than my full-length series of the Elizabeth Wellbeing show episodes, currently in our 11th season. Wow. And these go live every Wednesday now. That's Wellbeing Wednesday, of course. And these feature just one guest, usually a leading specialist or an expert in a particular area of health and well-being. And this week, we had the psychologist Sabrina Brennan on the show, talking all things brain fog and mental clarity. Well worth a listen, actually, if you haven't already caught that new episode. So today, I thought I'd be a bit more topical, and with so much endlessly continuing to be in the news regarding the pandemic, and thankfully our pathways out of it, I am turning my attention to focus on something related to COVID, but far, far more significant in terms of our overall health, well-being, and ultimately potential mortality, and that is the subject of sepsis. Now, for those not aware, sepsis is an emergency medical condition that affects at least a quarter of a million people in the UK each and every year, from the very young to the very old. And it claims the lives of almost 50,000 people. And the latest figures show that globally, 11 million lives are lost each year to sepsis, which kind of puts COVID into perspective, doesn't it? With thankfully far fewer, very important, obviously. But I think it's also good to talk about some of the other really big health concerns that do surround us on a daily basis. Well, to talk more about what sepsis is, how we can recognize the signs of this dangerous killer, and how it relates to COVID and what's going on around us right now, I have invited the founder of the Sepsis Trust charity, Dr. Ron Daniels, onto the pod. He is an NHS consultant working in intensive care right now at the sharp end. And what he has to say is really worth listening to. 
So, Ron, a very warm welcome to my podcast here. I'm so looking forward to talking about this because I've been reading so much about sepsis and it just seems to be such an awful, awful condition and that's so surprisingly common. And I'm really so hoping that we can discuss this in some detail. So thank you. Absolutely. And thank you for having me on. So let's go back to your background. You're an NHS consultant and you're, you're working in an intensive care unit in Birmingham. Um, what was your background? Is that where you first came across sepsis then in intensive care? Yes, it was. So across the UK, most intensive care consultants are anaesthetists by background. So uh, they tend to deliver perhaps half of their time in giving anaesthetics and half of their time in intensive care because the skills are quite transferable. So it was in my intensive care role back in 2005 that I just had a little run of relatively young patients who presented to hospital quite late, perhaps were undertreated or under-recognised and came to harm as a consequence. And it really came to a head when we tragically lost a young man of 37 years of age by the name of Jem, Jem Abbott. And I have his family's permission to, to share his name. And he died on our intensive care unit on a Monday morning and he didn't need to have died. And I just oh. felt, began to feel this is so unjust. We've got to do something about it. Mm. So what is sepsis then? Let's, let, let's go back to basics here. And, and how can we recognise it? Sepsis is the way the body responds to an infection. So it's always triggered by an infection. But in sepsis, the body's immune system goes into overdrive. And if we don't stop it, that's what starts to cause damage to the organs and can lead to death. Now, I say any infection. Usually it's a bacterial infection, but it can be caused by fungal infection and also viruses. And there's good evidence and lots of expert opinion now that the people who are most severely ill with COVID-19, those who are in intensive care, for example, mm. are there because of sepsis. Isn't that extraordinary? I hadn't realised that viruses could cause sepsis. You know, I, is, is sepsis the same as septicemia, which I always think of as a bacterial infection? It, it absolutely is. Septicemia in the adult medical world is, is an obsolete term. It sort of implies that there's something we can measure in the blood to identify sepsis, but that's actually not the case. It's a clinical diagnosis. So we've replaced the term septicemia with the term sepsis. Got you. And so in these, because this is very relevant, obviously, to talk about now, in these COVID patients, what's happening then internally that would make a virus with, with, with a viral infection transfer then into sepsis? The body recognises that there's what we call a pathogen, a bug, an, an invading microbe that's beginning to cause inflammation, beginning to cause a, a problem. And it then activates the immune system. It also activates the, the clotting system. We call it the coagulation system. And between those two body systems that are designed to protect us, designed to save our lives, they can overreact. And that starts to cause inflammation all through the body, including in the major organs. Mm, my goodness. And how do you treat that in hospital? I mean, presumably by this stage, somebody is in intensive care, are they? Sepsis will always require hospital care because organs begin to fail. Many patients who develop sepsis will require treatment in intensive care, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. We have rather fewer intensive care beds in the UK than we do in some other developed countries. And so it's important that we can deliver the basics of care for sepsis outside an intensive care environment. Yeah. So it involves supporting the body, supporting the organs. So that will be 
giving fluids and drugs to restore the circulation. We might need to put people on a kidney machine. They might need help with their breathing through a ventilator and so forth. But it also involves, where possible, controlling the trigger, controlling the source of infection. So, of course, for bacterial infections, we can give antibiotics. If it's something like an abscess, then we can drain it. If it's an infected line, we can remove it. Of course, for viral infections like uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, that source control isn't very amenable to, uh, to clinical intervention. Right. So that makes it harder to treat then, yeah? Well, it does. And considering COVID-19 and the very severely ill as sepsis actually helps us to understand why some of the therapies that we think might work don't seem to have a huge effect. So antiviral drugs like remdesivir, we've actually stopped using it in intensive care because it effect, its effect is minimal. The, the drugs that we really know help and that we're still using in intensive care and that all the research studies have demonstrated to be a benefit are drugs that control the immune system. So we call them immunomodulatory drugs. They're simple ones like steroids, such as dexamethasone, and then more complex and costly therapies like tocilizumab. Mm. And that presumably is why for some people, you know, ventilators aren't the answer. Indeed. And I think we've kind of got a slightly skewed understanding um, outside the medical world as to whether ventilators are beneficial or harmful in people with COVID-19. The reality is, if a ventilator is needed, it can be life-saving. The reason there's some confusion has developed is very early on in the disease, when we knew very little about it, we probably ventilated people a little bit too early. So we ventilated people when their blood oxygen levels began to dip. We didn't know how to treat the disease. And we gradually learned over time that actually it was quite safe to withhold ventilation until such time as the oxygen levels dipped precipitously. Um, and, And so there's been a gradual iteration over time. But it's absolutely correct that ventilators can save lives if they're needed. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, to see how things develop and progress and how we learn and can adapt and and save more lives. Before we come off the subject of COVID-19, what's it like your end at the moment? You're obviously working at the sharp end. How's, How's your unit doing? You coping? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see the data in the public domain for, for, for yourselves at the moment. So at the time of recording, it's uh, towards the end of May 2021, we're finding that we are coming towards the end of the second wave. So there are far fewer patients in intensive care um, with active COVID-19. There's quite a few who are what we might describe as ex-COVID-19. So they came in with COVID, they're taking a very long time to wean from ventilation, they're not infectious, they're just profoundly weak. Um, But the number of people coming into intensive care units with new COVID-19 is very, very small indeed at the time of recording. Excellent. That's very good news. Thank you. Good news for a Friday if you're listening to this in real time. So let's talk generally now about sepsis. Um, I remember seeing some absolutely devastating pictures of young children. And, you know, as a mother of five, I think it's always, you know, very resonates, doesn't it? When when you see pictures of, of children who are similar ages to your own, who've had limbs amputated, you know, sometimes all four limbs amputated and simply through reading certainly the press reports, sepsis not being picked up early enough. Is is that the reality? Well, it's it's a reality and, of course, an horrific reality mm-hmm. for, for far too many parents. 
Sepsis preferentially affects people at the extremes of age. So there are far more older adults developing sepsis than there are younger adults, and thankfully far more older adults than there are children. But children under the age of one, and to a slightly lesser extent, children under the age of five are at increased risk of sepsis. A majority of children affected have underlying conditions, just as with people becoming seriously ill with COVID-19, but it can affect otherwise fit, healthy children. And people listening might have heard the story of little William Meads, the, the very fit, healthy um, young boy from Cornwall who died at around one year of age. He had no health problems whatsoever. Sepsis can affect anyone but more commonly, it's people with underlying illness and at the extremes of age. So just to cover that, the underlying illness would be what? Things that affect the immune system? Well, exactly. And, you know, in, in older adults, the, the immune system begins to decline in sufficiency. In very young children, the immune system's yet to develop. So the situation is well primed for it to overreact. There are, of course, conditions that predispose people to infection. So conditions like diabetes or uh, COPD, lung disease, airways disease. Those conditions make us more likely to develop infection and then more, therefore more likely to develop sepsis. And a lot of the children have been, we're getting very, very good with modern healthcare at saving very premature, very low birth weight infants, infants with very severe um, underlying disease. And because we're getting better at saving their lives and bringing them through into childhood, those children bring with them an increased risk of sepsis. That's very interesting, isn't it, for anybody listening to that who you know may have a, a, a prem baby in the family or, or, or child. I have been concerned before. I remember walking on a beach and cutting my foot on a pebble or something and then you know it went septic and I you know doused it in Dettol or something and you know watched it very very carefully and ended up I didn't have to go and have antibiotics uh thankfully and 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 it got better but is that a, a sort of occurrence that could if untreated lead to something like sepsis well, it absolutely could. And, and what we don't want is for people to live their lives terrified of sepsis. We've had enough terror over the last 15 sure months um, to, to, to last us a lifetime. So people shouldn't live in constant fear of sepsis, but people should be aware of it. It's far more common, for example, than meningitis, yet we would all be horrified if people were unaware of meningitis. So we have to be aware of sepsis. We have to be empowered to ask the question of health professionals, could it be sepsis? Right. Cutting ourselves, a soft tissue injury, that accounts for maybe one in 10 episodes of sepsis in adults. More common are episodes of sepsis as a consequence of simple infections like a, a pneumonia or a urinary tract infection. If we're unwell with any infection, and we're getting worse, we just need to have in the back of our minds, could it be sepsis? Very interesting. And so the signs for that, particularly if it's something internally, obviously, if it's even if it's a cut or a wound, we can see the, the, the sort of septic response going on. But if it's internally, that would present what as a, as a high fever, a general feeling of, of being unwell? Well, yeah, absolutely, it could be. I mean, m many of us know what having an infection feels like. We generally feel under the weather, we feel very lethargic, we might take ourselves to bed. High fever is one indicator of an infection, but actually a very low temperature is even more worrying. When I had COVID-19, my temperature was 34.6 degrees. And 
that would alarm most health professionals with any other infection. So it's a so it's a high temperature or a low temperature. The temperature can be normal. A normal temperature doesn't rule out infection. If we've got pneumonia, of course, we might be coughing. We might be bringing up horrible colored phlegm. If we've got a, a urinary tract infection, it, it might be offensive smelling. It might burn when we're trying to pee. Any symptom of an infection, and then we think we're getting worse, that's when we need to begin to think about sepsis. And how would that be treated? You know, supposing you, you talk to your GP or you call 111, you know, wh- how would they then diagnose it? So it's a clinical assessment and hopefully we'll get back in time once capacity allows to face-to-face GP appointments. Wow. But it has to be clinical. We have to record vital signs, things like blood pressure, heart rate, breathing rate. We have to examine the patient, take a history. So it's bringing together all of these things together with blood tests to make this clinical diagnosis. It's not a simple diagnosis to make, and that's why it's essential to get this right. We have a partnership between a public who are empowered to access healthcare and health professionals who are thinking sepsis. Absolutely. Those, those two things are really important. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You talk obviously a lot about the immune system, and that I can see that that's fundamental. We are becoming a nation, well, a globe, obsessed with sanitizing, and you know, everywhere you go, there are just endless amounts of hand gel, hand sanitizers, wipe sprays. Are we in danger of becoming too clean? Do you think? Um, and you know, making I, I've heard that we can make superbugs worse by being too clean, or is it really, really important for things like sepsis that that we you know continue with the stream? measure of disinfecting everything. 
So I think we absolutely have to have a bit of balance. And it, and it does make me chuckle when we have, you know, for example, a parent of a young child obsessing about the use of hand sanitizer gel and the child's going out and picking up worms and eating mud and, and, and so forth. It, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a joke. We have to have cleanliness and sterility when there are very high risk populations around. So hospitals, of course, we would expect to be clean. It's important in a pandemic when there is a potential to contract a virus in public spaces to think about our own hand hygiene. But in the home, when we're surrounded by people we love and interact with, probably share a bed with and certainly share meals with, to obsess about cleanliness possibly does more harm than good. Our immune systems need to be trained during our lives in order that they can fight routine infections. And let's remember, sepsis every year claims 11 million lives around the world. COVID-19 at the time of recording in May 21 has claimed 3.4, 3.47 million lives as of yesterday. Gosh, and, and that's and that's over a longer time frame than a year. And you're saying sepsis is taking 11 million a year. That's staggering. We should be shouting that from the headlines, shouldn't we? It should be. There's no doubt that COVID-19 is an horrific and deadly condition for some people. Obviously, a majority of people, thankfully, can manage their symptoms at home if they develop symptoms at all. But it's important to remember that every single year, infection claims more than three times as many lives as COVID-19 has thus far claimed. Yeah, and hopefully we can be informed and, and do something about it. What do you think about using, you know, sanitizing sprays and all of that at home? Are, are we getting too clean? I, I did read a report somewhere that uh, that superbugs were beginning to breed from the tops of um, of hand sanitizing gels. Are, are we in danger? Do you think of having too much use of that 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 will store up problems for the future for us? This issue with multi-use um, sterilizing fluids, whether it's hand sanitizer gel, whether it's bottles of sterilizing fluid in hospital, if they're used time and time again and they're hanging around for a few weeks or months, it's really well known that you can grow resistant bugs from the top of them. We are all to a degree house proud, some more so than others, and we want our homes to look nice and to be uh, physically clean, but for them to be hygienically clean is simply not necessary and might actually be harmful from the perspective of our immune systems. As I've said, in hospital environments where we've got people who are at very high risk of infection, cleanliness and hygiene is super important, but in our home, a little less so. Let's just keep our homes nice. Do you think there's a, a potential danger of children growing up in this environment currently where everything is so sanitised? And as you say, they are being asked to you know, sanitise their hands you know, every, every few minutes, that, there is, that their immune systems won't then fully develop to enable them to be better able to resist something like sepsis as they become adults? I think that's absolutely a risk. Our, our immune systems, we, we have broadly uh, two types of immunity, and we call them innate immunity, which is the, the stuff the immune system's primed to do from birth or from about six months of age when it's fully developed. And then the adaptive immunity. And adaptive immunity relies upon exposure to bugs to keep us safe. The immune system has to learn. If we have no bugs in the environment, and remember our bodies are full of trillions of healthy bacteria anyway, if we have no bugs in the environment, the immune system can't learn, and that's going to put us at risk in the future. Notwithstanding the impact of 
alcohol gel on our children's hands. Some, yeah. some children having horrible um, skin on their hands as a result of repeated use of hand sanitizer. And I think, you know, as as a parent myself, if I was a parent listening, if my child's hands were becoming very inflamed from the use of hand sanitizer, please do remember and please do say to the school, soap and water is equally effective, in fact, yeah. more effective at killing bugs. Well, and soap and water, I mean, it has has my, my vote for sure. I mean, it, it doesn't come in single-use plastic. It's uh, kinder on the skin and, as you say, just as effective. Looking at things like antibiotics, I've been involved with various organisations in the past you know, campaigning against the routine use of antibiotics in, in intensive farming, for example. And I know there have been big campaigns within the NHS to try and get doctors to perhaps not prescribe routinely antibiotics where they're not absolutely essential. How do we stand at the moment with antibiotic resistance and having enough antibiotic capacity, if you like, to treat things like acute sepsis when you see it? Well, I mean, at the risk of causing undue fear, it is a normal occurrence in intensive care for us to be faced with patients infected with bugs that are sensitive only to one or two antibiotics. So antibiotic resistance is here today and is causing harm today. The pipeline for the development of new antibiotics is very, very slow. There's been no new classes of antibiotic developed for, for years and years and years. So it is alarming and we have to improve our use of antibiotics. There are people, of course, who urgently need antibiotics, and clearly they include people who have sepsis due to a bacterial infection. But there are also people who are accessing antibiotics and being prescribed antibiotics needlessly. We need to improve that behaviour, and that's around public education as well as health professional education. The issue in intensive farming is a big one, and the Scandinavian countries and the UK have actually done more to combat this than many other countries around the world. But there are antibiotics in our food chain that we are consuming. And although there isn't concrete evidence, there's very, very good um, supportive evidence to show that that can impact on resistance of antibiotics against human pathogens. So we've got a problem. We've got to improve our behaviour. And that behaviour might be to say, well, OK, let's not have meat every day. Or if we're going to have, I don't know, a meal with chicken, let's not have two chicken breasts. Let's have one and get it from a responsible source that isn't intensively farmed. So we're paying a bit more for higher quality meat in smaller absolutely. portions less frequently. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, go organic, antibiotic free, totally. Um, in terms of other superbugs that we hear about or have heard about in the press, things like MRSA, obviously the news has been overtaken with, with COVID and talking about healthcare, but I'm assuming that MRSA hasn't gone away. No, MRSA hasn't gone away. And the other one that we've heard about in the past, C. diff, Clostridium difficile, that's not gone away either. There are other bugs that we're worried about, though, sort of vancomycin producing Enterobacter, for, for, for example, um, carbapenemase producing Klebsiella. These are common bugs that are becoming increasingly resistant. Now, in Northern Europe, we're relatively okay at the moment in, ter in terms of some of those slightly concerning pathogens, but they're not far away. In Southern Europe, particularly around the Mediterranean countries, they're really quite prevalent. And it's only a matter of time before they reach these shores. So we've got to improve our behavior. We've got to see 
the responsible use of antibiotics as a societal problem. It's almost like a plastics in the ocean. If we run out of antibiotics, lots of people will die every year. So yes. we've got to improve our behaviour right now. So would you say that, just as we finish up here, as, as a takeaway, that if you go to your doctor and you have a prescription for antibiotics, should you question and just say, I'm just checking that this is absolutely essential for me right now because I'm aware that the more antibiotic uh, use I have, potentially the, the, the less able I will be to respond later in the future should I need it for something really life-threatening? I think that's absolutely a part of it. And the behaviours we need to stop are the behaviours such as somebody who's probably got a common cold, they've got a big meeting at work the next week, and they go to the GP to get some antibiotics just in case. That behaviour has to stop. We have to use antibiotics when we're deteriorating, when we definitely need them, or we almost certainly need them. But I think it, it, is, it is more than that. People, Most people don't want to go and see their GP. It, it's taking time out of their working day. It's often associated with waiting. And when we go, we go because we feel unwell and we want to be validated. We want to be taken seriously. And all too often, given that GPs only have a few minutes with each patient, the easiest thing to do to validate that attendance is to give them a prescription so they can go home and say to their loved one, look, darling, I told you I was ill. I've got antibiotics. If we can get better at using not only clinical assessment, but also point of care diagnostic tests to help us in decision making, we can use that instead to validate. Look, darling, I told you I was ill. The doctor did a special test and it said I've got a really nasty virus. Yes. <laughs> and I need to get bed rest and you need to bring me some tea. Um, and lastly, I, I can't let you go without asking a question about gut health because that's that's one of my special areas of, of, of interest. And we know that so much of our immune system is formed and supported there. Is, is there a role for really focusing on our gut health, do you think, to better support our, our immune system? Can we basically help ourselves be better equipped to fight off these deadly bugs? Well, I think there's absolutely something in this. And, and it is by no means my area of expertise. There are some brilliant people internationally who have great expertise, including microbiologists, around gut health. There is really good evidence that a healthy gut flora, a healthy gut collection of healthy bacteria protects us, improves our general health, strengthens our immunity and makes us less commonly unwell. I think when we have to be mindful that when we're taking antibiotics and particularly perhaps speaking to these people who've got that important meeting next week and want to take them just in case, that affects our gut flora. It makes us less prepared against future infections. And we've got to think about that before we consume antibiotics, as well as if we've had to have antibiotics for good reason, think about how we can re-energize the healthy bacteria within our gut. Definitely. Ron, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Honestly, I, I could sit and chat for hours, but I know you are um, A, extremely busy and B, we've kind of run out of time and I, you need to get back to your patients. But I'm so grateful that you've shared such important information and I will put all the resources about the Sepsis Trust uh, at the end of this podcast so that people can go. You've got a great website and lots of good things going on there and it's so reassuring and just continue to do what you're doing. You're just brilliant and, and good luck with everything, especially in the intensive care unit. Thank you so much. And it's an absolute pleasure. And hopefully some of these message will safeguard some listeners in the future. 
What an interesting chat. And isn't it fascinating how so many things lead us right back to the microbiome and better gut health and the importance now more than ever of protecting our gut microbes so that they in turn can better protect us. And that's why I wrote my gut health book, actually, The Good Gut Guide, because I found that as the editor-in-chief of Lizard Wellbeing magazine, almost every single medical expert that we spoke to about articles we were running, be it a dermatologist on skin, a psychiatrist on mental illness and a cancer specialist on oncology. You know, they all said the same thing, that the advances being made in understanding the microbiome and our gut health is absolutely pivotal in getting and staying well. And if you'd like to know more specifically about sepsis, how to spot the signs, what to do, and importantly, how to raise awareness and help support the charity, please do head to Sepsis Trust. Dot org. That's sepsistrust.org. Well, before I go, just a few thank yous for your emails that have come into my wellbeing team's inbox. Uh, there's one here from Joanne in the West Country who says, I've been so inspired by your posts over the last 12 months during this very difficult time. I just wanted to say a few words. I work in a small exclusive salon and I speak to so many of our special clients about what you do, especially regarding the menopause. It's truly amazing. I was perimenopausal at 38. So I feel you have truly changed my life and truly inspired so many. I hope you don't mind me emailing. It is really something I want to do as we all need to look after ourselves. Thank you very much, Joanne. Yes, it is important, isn't it? We do all need to look after ourselves. Uh, this here from Grace on Instagram, who says, Liz, a big thank you. You've worked tirelessly for years on behalf of all menopausal women. We're lucky to have you and your knowledge. It is life-changing. I love the Wellbeing magazine and all your books. I have recommended them to my friends. Thank you very much indeed, Grace. And thank you, as always, for all your kind reviews over on iTunes and for all the five-star ratings for this podcast. My small but mighty team are seriously grateful for these. And if you do get a chance to flick that little five-star rating button at the end of this podcast, we would also appreciate it. You know, it really does help to get us noticed and perhaps punch a bit above our weight when it comes to sharing some of the important and positive news from the world of well-being. Well, don't forget to head over to lizardwellbeing.com where you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter. Just jam-packed it is with recipes, articles, money off, discount codes, competitions and more. Just the thing for the weekend. And with that, wherever you are listening to me right now in this wonderful wide world of ours, have a great weekend and an excellent week ahead. Go well. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.